If you have a Bible nearby, I'd invite you to, uh, to grab it, open it, uh, and we're going to be in 1 Peter. Um, you know, I, I think another one of the decisions that has to be made uh, by pastors and, and, and churches in this, on this day and in this season is, you know, when it comes to the time of, you know, kind of delivering God's word, do we, do we focus in on what's going on? Uh, you know, should I interrupt what we've been doing and let's just, let's do a sermon on, you know, how to trust God in the midst of suffering or how to, um, you know, handle the coronavirus pandemic as it were. Um, and I, I've always been um, impacted by a story uh, of uh, the, the French pastor, John Calvin, who was, uh, who was a pastor at a church in Geneva, Switzerland, and uh, he was preaching through a book of the Bible. I don't remember which one, um, but he was preaching through a book of the Bible, just pass- one passage at a time. And he was removed from the office by some of the leaders in the church who didn't like the way that he was going about making his reforms, uh, his changes in the church. And so they, they booted him out. Uh, and so he left and was gone for like maybe two or three years, some, somewhere in that range. Um, and then things started to kind of fall apart and the, the leaders in the church realized, actually, you know, uh, Calvin was maybe not so bad after all. And so they, they wrote to him and implored him, please come back and uh, pastor our church again. And he did. Uh, so, so Calvin graciously took that offer and came back to the church to begin pastoring again. And on his first Sunday back, you might expect some message about, you know, justice or relational unity or something like that. But what he did was he just picked up with the very next passage that he had been in, in the book that he had been preaching two or three years ago and just kept on going. No fuss, no fanfare, no let's stop and look at the moment. It was Let's just keep going in God's word. And I love that, uh, that example so much. And so that's what we're going to do today. Rather than like a sermon on coronavirus, um, we're just going to do the next text in First Peter because that's, uh, that's what we've been doing uh, in 2020. And we're going to keep up with that now. So I invite you in your Bibles to First Peter uh, chapter 2. And we find ourselves now in verses 18 through 25. 18 through 25, and we're just going to dive right into this. Now, Peter's instructions to the church uh, at this time have been, so he's writing to Christians who are on the social margins, right? So uh, maybe not, there may not be a, a systemic sort of government-induced uh, or empire-wide persecution yet, although it's coming, um, of Christians in that day. Um, but Christians have been socially sort of rejected, um, looked down upon, uh, insulted, belittled in various ways because of their, their faith in Christ and the way that, that that called them to live. So he's writing to people that he calls elect exiles, God's chosen people who are living as strangers and aliens, right, in a foreign land. This is not where we belong. And that's true of Christians in 21st century America just as much as it was true of these Christians in Asia Minor in the first century. And so his instructions have been to remember the incredible, glorious inheritance that God is storing up and guarding for his people that will be given to us at the return of Jesus. That's the the first half or so of chapter 1. And then he turns his attention to exhorting Christians to live holy lives, right? To conduct yourselves with Holiness, be holy as I am holy, says God the Father. And then he begins to spell out what that looks like. What does holiness look like? And the first thing is it looks like love. 
that looks like the people of God loving one another sincerely, earnestly, uh, from a pure heart. And then he begins to, he began in chapter 2, verse 13, unfolding a theme that he'll carry on throughout this letter of a way that honorable conduct will look, and it's the theme of submission. It's Christians willingly, humbly submitting themselves to the authorities that God has placed in their lives. And as Christians humbly submit to those authorities, our ultimate allegiance to Jesus Christ and our citizenship in his kingdom is seen and celebrated for what it is. And some will believe, right? Some will see the good deeds that we do. Some will see this, uh, this allegiance that we have to Christ's kingdom and will themselves be converted. Many obviously will not. But that is, the, that is what Peter is exhorting us to. So in our verses last week, he said, be subject to every human institution for the Lord's sake, uh, whether the emperor is supreme or the governors as sent by him. And so we spoke about submitting to civil government um, in our message last week. So far as those command, the commands of government do not directly violate or contradict clear commands of God in his word. And so now we find ourselves in verse 18 through 25, where Peter is going to address slaves. He's addressing slaves in his audience, and he's going to exhort them in a particular direction to submit. So I'm going to read for you verses 18 through 25. I'll give you what I think is the big idea of the text, and then we'll walk through it together. 1 Peter 2, beginning of verse 18. Servants, or slaves... Be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Praise God for his word. The big idea, that I, the way that I would express the truth, I think, that Peter is tell, teaching us here is that Christians who patiently endure unjust suffering will be rewarded by God and are faithful imitators of Christ. Patiently enduring unjust suffering will be rewarded by God and faithfully imitates Christ. Now, before we get into the the meat of the text, I think I need to make uh, some comments on slavery. This is one of those passages where when the Bible addresses a topic like this, particularly the theme of slavery, without outright condemning the institution, right, without saying to his readers, rise up, 
fight back. This is unjust, right? So, so we, there's a natural tension, I think, that occurs to us because we recognize slavery is bad, right? Slavery is evil. People can't own people. Um, and so that is, it, it is wrong. And so there's a part of us, I think, that wants Peter to say to those of you who are slaves, quit doing that, right? Like run away or fight back or stop being slaves because slavery is evil and let's put an end to it, right? But that's not what Peter does. And that's not what any of the New Testament writers do when they address slavery or slaves in their letters. And I think it's worth thinking about why that is. One thing to note is that there are some differences between what comes to our mind when we think of slavery, namely American chattel slavery, like in the 18th, 17th, uh, I guess 18th and 19th century. Um, we have images conjured up about slavery that we then probably kind of place back onto the biblical text and assume that it was exactly like that. And there are some ways that slavery seemed to be different in that day than it was in our own American context. For one thing, American slavery was race-based, right? The people who were slaves in America were Africans who had been kidnapped and enslaved. And so there was, a, there was an inherent racial component to the class of people that were regarded as property. Obviously, this is evil. Obviously, this is wrong. But in America, slavery was race-based. And that wasn't necessarily the case in the Roman Empire in these ancient days. In fact, there was probably a fair amount of, of diversity among ethnicities of people who were in that category of, of slaves. Um, in America, slaves were generally forbidden basic rights, like education and sometimes even adequate uh, food and clothing. But in, the, in ancient Rome, slaves were generally allowed to be educated, and in some cases probably would have been even more educated than their owners which is interesting. And so there were certain uh, w uh, opportunities that slaves in that day would have had that slaves in America didn't have. And so we need to be careful not to import our understanding of slavery onto the Bible. Um, American slaves were all kidnapped. That's how they became slaves. They were kidnapped from their homes, brought here in chains and forced into servitude, uh, which again, if I need to keep saying this, is wicked and not permissible. And there were Christians uh, who even used the Bible to support slavery, and that is a terrible misuse of God's word, and we ought to, to, to recognize that. Um, in, the ancient, in, in, in the ancient Roman Empire, slavery, uh, people would enter into slavery in some different ways. Kidnapping was definitely one of them. That was a thing that happened. Um, but one would be uh, by being captured in a war, and so you became the slave of an enemy nation because you were a prisoner of, of war, as it were. Um, obviously, if you were a person were, was born to a slave, like if your mom and dad are slaves and you're born to them, uh, I'm sorry, you have to be a slave too. That's the, that's the way that it worked. But some people actually sold themselves into slavery as a way of, uh, of paying off debt. And so it was seen as sort of a last resort of if I'm under such a mountain of debt, there's no way I could pay it back. I could sell myself into servitude in order to, to pay off a debt. And so there are some differences between American chattel slavery and slavery in ancient Rome. And so we need to be careful not to just assume that it was all exactly like that. However, I think even with those distinctions, it's, it's clear enough for us to say that slavery, when you boil it down, is people owning people, and that is wrong. That is not godly, that is unjust, and so slavery at its very root is 
wicked. And so we can condemn it on biblical principles. So the question becomes, why doesn't Peter rail against slavery uh, as an institution in this letter? Why isn't he calling the people to sort of rise up and fight back? The first thing to say is an answer to that question is a, a, a revolution, a, a movement of Christians to fight back against the institution of slavery in the Roman Empire would have been doomed to utter failure. Because this is a young, fledgling, small community at this point in the Roman Empire, and they're already on the social margins and outcasts. So for Christians to sort of rally and fight back against the Roman Empire and against this long-standing institution um, would have utterly failed and put the church really at unnecessary risk uh, and, and ended up probably killing many, if not all, of them. And so it would have... Uh, it would have utterly failed. And so revolution was really just not an option. That is hard, I think, for uh, particularly for Americans to hear and to process, um, both because we are so we have it so ingrained within us to fight for your individual rights, right? You do not have a right to own me or to oppress me, and so it is my right and, and obligation to then fight back or push back against that. And because, until recent decades, Christianity enjoyed a place of relative privilege and power within the United States, and even just a vastness of numbers. So, the idea of rallying Christians together to fight for a particular cause actually had at least a viable chance at succeeding in America. That was not the case for Christians in the first century in the Roman Empire. So as Peter writes to these, these, these churches of mostly Gentile Christians in Asia Minor, the, the notion of sort of rallying them to fight back uh, is simply not, uh, not an option for them. It's not something that they would have uh, considered as realistic. Um, another reason, maybe the bigger reason, that, they don't re- that you don't really see Peter just railing against slavery as an institution uh, is that they are writing to their audiences to address the situations in which they live, not necessarily the ideal world that we hope that they would live in, right? Or the, the way that they wish things would be. So they're writing to Christians who are facing particular challenges and burdens and situations, and they're trying to equip them to live faithfully under those situations and under those burdens. In fact, the, the wickedness of Slavery as an institution seems to be assumed by Peter and I would argue Paul and those who, who write about it uh, or write to slaves. Um, it seems to be assumed and actually provide the context for how they write to these Christians. Because bear in mind, remember that what Peter says is that slaves should obey their masters even though they're unjust. So he recognizes there is injustice inherent in the system of slavery. So he's not saying slavery is good. You should just accept it and be happy about it. He recognizes that slaves are suffering and often they're suffering unjust uh, mistreatment. And so uh, there is an assumption that it is evil. And so he is writing, um, he appears to recognize the injustice of its reality um, and therefore is writing not to say to convince them that it's evil and then to rally them or rile them up to go fight back against it, but rather to say, follow Christ, represent Christ, 
in the situation you find yourselves. New Testament scholar Tom Schreiner says, New Testament writers were not social revolutionaries. They did not believe that overhauling social structures would transform culture. Their concern was the relationship of individuals to God, and they focused on the sin and rebellion of individuals against their creator. New Testament writers, therefore, concentrated instead on the godly response of believers to mistreatment. So Peter isn't making a value judgment on slavery, certainly not in a positive direction, saying, yeah, slavery's really okay, you should like just get okay with it. He recognizes that it's wrong and often brings unjust suffering. But he's writing to Christians, by the way, who are slaves. Like, he doesn't say, hey, if you happen to know a slave, tell this to him. He says, slaves, be subject to your masters, right? So in other words, there are Christians in his original audience who are slaves. And so he is writing to them, not just about slavery, but he's writing to Christians in his audience who are slaves and he aims to provide them with encouragement and hope to face the cruelty and sorrows that characterize their day-to-day lives. That is what Peter aims to do in these verses. And so that's probably enough uh, commentary on slavery itself, but I wanted to hopefully be I wanted us to be able to set aside our sort of reaction to slavery as an institution and consider Peter's exhortation here, not just the slaves, but really broadly to all Christians to endure patiently unjust suffering. So the first uh, three verses, verses 18 through 20, uh, really what they tell us is patience in suffering will be rewarded. Patience in suffering will be rewarded. Look at verse 18 there. He says, be subject to your masters with all respect. And the word there, the Greek word behind respect in the ESV is literally fear. So he says, be subject to your masters with all fear. But he's just told the same audience in relationship to the government and to the emperor not to fear anyone but God. Right? He said, honor the emperor, love the brotherhood, fear God. Right? And so... It, it, it makes sense here to, to believe that Peter is not then saying, therefore, slaves should now fear their masters. I think what he means is their fear is of God. And so he's saying to slaves very much like what he said to all Christians about how to relate to government, out of reverence for God, be subject to your masters. And so it's a, the very same sort of structure as his command in verse 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. And here in verse 18, it's be subject to your masters with all fear. Not fear of the masters, but fear of God. In other words, out of your honor for God and your desire to, uh, to give him praise and allegiance, obey your masters. Not just the righteous ones, but also the unjust ones. And so in verse 19, again, so just to point out, he recognizes injustice here. So there's some masters, some owners of slaves in that day who would have been good and gentle masters, probably treated their slaves well, gave them lots of opportunities, uh, education, etc. Um, and there are some who were unjust, that is, who would treat them badly, withhold resources and opportunities from them, 
uh, out of uh, cruelty, right? They're just unjust. And he says, remarkably, obey them anyway. Obey your masters, be subject to your masters, the good and gentle and the unjust. And then he's going to sort of explain why. And if you look at verses 19 and 20, they begin and end with the phrase, this is grace, or this is a gracious thing. That's how ESV says it. Look at verse 19. This is a gracious thing when mindful of God, right? And so it's that phrase, this is grace, which speaks to God's blessing, the undeserved, unmerited gift of God is his grace. And so he begins it, this is grace, and then he ends verse 20 doing the same thing. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. And so those verses really go together. Verses 19 and 20, we need to make sure we keep those together to see what it is that he's driving at. And it is stated as a principle so that what he calls slaves to do with their masters applies more broadly to all Christians under any unjust authority. So we have a broad principle here. This is grace. This is a gracious thing. Verse 19. When mindful of God, there we go again, that same thing, with all fear, not of masters, but of God. When mindful of God, you endure sorrows while suffering unjustly. Endure sorrows while suffering unjustly. So the, the grace here, the gift here, is for those who patiently endure not just suffering, but who endure unjust suffering. And that raises the question that we must answer. What makes suffering unjust? What's the difference between normal suffering and unjust suffering? And verse 20 defines it for us. He says, what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? Like, if you deserve the suffering that you're receiving, like if the suffering you're enduring is the consequences of your own disobedience or sin, there's no credit for you in enduring that suffering. But, and here it is, but if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. This is grace to God. So unjust suffering is when you suffer for doing good. We have a category here for unjust suffering, namely that which comes about either because of or in spite of righteous conduct. I did the right thing and I still suffered for it. Or I did the right thing and on that very basis I was singled out or suffered for it. That is a category of suffering that Peter calls unjust suffering. Because righteousness should yield reward. It should yield blessing. But when righteousness yields suffering or consequence, that is what God, through Peter here, calls unjust suffering. So we need to be clear here that suffering that comes about as a result of our sin is not unjust suffering. If the hardship you're enduring stems from consequences of your own sinful choices, you have no ground to boast, 
look how humbly and willingly I am enduring this hardship. No, you brought it on yourself with your own sin, with your own wrong choices. Now, I guess that's more honorable than the alternative, right? To reject the consequences or deny responsibility, right? I sinned, suffered consequences, and went, nope, that's not for me. I didn't do anything wrong. Like, that's, I guess that's worse than accepting your consequences. But even just accepting the consequences of your own sin is not what Peter has in view here as, as, as worthy of reward. It's like, no, you're just reaping what you've sowed, as the Bible would say. Um, it is not regarded by God as a gracious thing when you endure suffering because of your own wrongdoing. And let's be honest, we're pretty lenient with ourselves on these matters. We're often inclined to interpret as unjust suffering what in truth is just the consequences of our own foolishness and disobedience. We need to be careful about playing the victim card, right? Look at all these terrible things that are happening to me, all this hardship I'm enduring. If you can trace all of that hardship back to a really bad choice or series of choices or sinful behavior on your own part, that's not a gracious thing in the sight of God. You're just enduring the consequences of your own sin. We are not victims of the suffering that comes into our lives because of our own sinful choices. So we need to be careful about that. So unjust suffering is the suffering that comes into our lives because of or in spite of our righteous living. I do the right thing and I suffer as a result. That is unjust suffering. And that, Peter says, God regards with grace. And I think he means God regards that with a gift, with reward. And I see that as well in, in the word that he uses, uh, the word credit, where he says, if you, uh, what credit is it? Verse 20, what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? So the word credit there would imply a gift, something that's been applied to your account based on your behavior, right? What credit is it if when you sin, you endure the suffering that comes? You don't get a gift for that. You don't get rewarded for that. Whoa, good for you. You endured the suffering that came about because of your own foolish, sinful choices. When you suffer for doing the right thing, then God regards that with grace and will reward you. He will reward you. Jesus says much the same thing in Luke chapter 6, verses 32 to 35, where he says, uh, if you love only those who love you, where is the reward in that? And then he calls Christians to actually love their enemies. And that's where the reward is. It's in loving those who hate you, in loving those who mistreat you. And I think Peter here sort of applies that principle to slaves, particularly obey your masters, even the unjust ones, and to Christians more broadly submitting themselves to any, um, any unjust suffering. Like when you do the right thing and you suffer for it, trust that God will then reward you. And I think the reward he has in mind is what he talked about in chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. That's this great, glorious, imperishable inheritance that is being guarded for us, that is being kept in heaven for us. And so I think he's saying to Christians who are suffering unjust suffering, 
God sees. God will reward you. And when the day comes, when Christ returns, you will receive the full, final fruit of your salvation. And it will be glorious beyond all compare. To quote Schreiner one more time, he says, he was saying that slaves who endure unjust suffering because of their relationship with God will be rewarded by God. What reward did he have in mind? He was probably speaking of the reception of the future inheritance described in such detail in chapter 1. And so that's what I just uh, just said to you. So um, unjust suffering then is that category of suffering where Christians are um, punished or given harsh treatment on the basis of or in spite of righteous living or because of our relationship with God. And I want to point out as well that the exhortation that Peter gives is not only to endure suffering, but to continue doing good, to keep doing good, even though suffering may come as a result. So we might take stock of our situation and go, you know what, if I do this, which is the right thing, bad things are going to happen. If I do this, keep my mouth shut or compromise or whatever, then that'll be the easier road because nobody will notice or care. If we decide to do the right thing, even though we know it'll bring suffering, and then when the suffering comes, God sees, God is pleased, and God will will reward you. And I think Peter is exhorting us to do that very thing. Even when you know that there may be consequences for doing the right thing, do the right thing anyway. And accept the suffering that comes. I'm reminded of Paul in Galatians 6, 9, where he says, Let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not give up. Why would somebody grow weary of doing good? At least partly because doing good will sometimes invite criticism and cruelty from an unbelieving world. The saying goes, no good deed goes unpunished, right? Paul knows, and Peter knows, that when we are faithful to Christ, when we do the right thing, when we stand for truth, when we honor him and and display our allegiance to his kingdom, suffering will come. Hardship will come. Opposition will come. Rejection will come. Insult and mockery and belittling and marginalizing will come. But if we know that and we do the right thing anyway, God sees and God will reward. So Christian, if you're in a season of suffering and hardship right now, ask yourself, is my suffering a result of righteousness or of sin? And try to be honest there. If you can trace back the suffering in your life to sin in your own life. In other words, I made a sinful choice and these are the consequences that it's bearing out. I don't mean that there's a mysterious sin that's disconnected from your suffering and so you're suffering because of sin, some other unrelated sin. But if if the the suffering you're enduring are the the results of a sinful choice that you know that you've made or or a pattern of behavior that you know is wrong, repent. (laughs) If that's the answer, it's you just need to repent. You just need to take that sin to God and confess it and say, I recognize that what I'm enduring is because of my own sin. Lord, forgive me and help me to endure the consequences 
with patience. But if you can conclude that the suffering you're enduring is actually a result of righteousness, I did the right thing and I'm suffering because of it, then consider the example that your patience, your patient endurance might have, both for your brothers and sisters in Christ, who might see your patient endurance of that suffering and themselves be inspired or encouraged to press on in faith and to face their own hardships. And also the influence it might have on unbelievers around you who might see a spark of a deeper treasure, a deeper hope in you and maybe be opened to a word of gospel truth. And so your patient endurance of suffering may have an effect on those around you as well. If you're unjustly treated and you endure it patiently, those around you, your brothers and sisters and unbelievers in your life might be uh, influenced for good and for God's glory in that. And in the meantime, don't just passively endure. Keep doing good. Don't grow weary. Take God at his word when he says, you will reap if you don't give up. That is a beautiful promise. If we keep doing good, we will reap the reward of our good if we don't give up. And I think that's exactly what Peter has in view here. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Patient endurance of unjust suffering will be rewarded by God. The second part of this passage, verses 21 through 25, tell us this. Patience in suffering faithfully imitates Christ. Patience and suffering faithfully imitates Christ. And so he points us here to the example of Jesus. Look in verse 21. He says, For to this you have been called. To what? To unjust suffering. What? God called me to suffer unjustly? Why would he do that? Because God loves you and he knows better than you. Right? You have been called to walk the road of unjust suffering because, the very next thing he says, Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. Christ suffered greatly and unjustly and patiently endured it. And so he provides us our example to follow. Now there's two, two ways that these verses point us to Christ uh, and, and the effect that they have on us. He tells us that Christ's example provides the motivation to faithfulness. His example motivates us to faithfulness. And then he tells us that Christ's atonement, that is what he accomplished on the cross in bringing sinners to God, his atonement provides the power for faithfulness. Both the motivation to remain faithful and the power to remain faithful come from Christ's work on the cross. Let's look, look at that a little more closely. There is a way in which Christian suffering for righteousness' sake is like the suffering of Jesus and a way in which it is not like the suffering of Jesus. Let's take those in turn. Our suffering, our patient endurance of unjust suffering, I should say, is like Christ's in that we are to follow his example of humble submission to unjust treatment. Just as he did not retaliate or return threat for threat, so we are to patiently endure wrongdoing without self-preserving argument 
or retribution. Let me prove to you why I was right and it's wrong of you to treat me this way. Jesus didn't do that. He certainly could have. But he was silent in the face of his accusers. He did not argue for himself. He did not retaliate. He did not breathe threats in return to the violence he received. No. Why? He entrusted himself. Look at verse 23. He continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. In other words, he wasn't saying, Jesus didn't make the decision, justice just won't be done here. He decided God's justice will be better justice. God's justice will be full. No one will escape that justice. And so he deferred justice to God's judgment to come. And he calls us to do the very same thing. Just as he entrusted himself to the Father as a just judge, so we are to faithfully wait upon God's vindication in the day of judgment, believing that he is able to care for us in our suffering and properly reward us in our future exaltation. So our suffering, our endurance of suffering, is to be like Christ's in that just as he did not fight back and entrusted himself to God's future judgment, that's what we should do too. We, as we suffer unjust treatment, should willingly, humbly, without retaliation, endure it, entrusting ourselves to God's judgment, knowing that it will come and it will be right. The judge of all the earth will do what is right, to quote Abraham in Genesis 18. Yet our suffering, our endurance of unjust suffering, is not like Christ's in another way. Namely, Christ's suffering atoned for our sins and became the ground of our own obedience and faithfulness to him. So we can endure suffering, but we cannot bear anybody else's sins. That's unique to Jesus and his work on the cross. We can patiently withstand hardship, but only Jesus in his sinlessness can cause us to, as Peter says, die to sin and live to righteousness. Verse 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might live to sin and die, uh, excuse me, die to sin and live to righteousness. Only his suffering purchased healing for our souls and bodies, removing the stains of sin and securing a future inheritance in glory, which can scarcely be imagined for its fullness and joy. Christ alone is able to accomplish that by his suffering. Your atonement, that is your being brought near and made one with God, happened through Christ's suffering in your place. We can't do that. I can't bear anyone else's sins and make them right with God by my suffering. I don't have to be anybody else's savior. And actually, I need to remind myself of that at times. As a, as a pastor, as a teacher, as somebody who cares about the spiritual life of other people, I often find myself wrestling with that. Why won't you just do what I'm saying to do? Or why won't you just take seriously what I'm exhorting you to do? And I have this burden of, I need to make this person see. No, I don't. <laughs> no, I don't. I can't bear anybody else's sin. I can't be anybody else's savior. There's only one of those, and it's the Lord Jesus. In his death on the cross, he took your sins. And he took my sins so that we might live 
to righteousness and die to sin. Praise God for his grace. And it is the very sinlessness of Jesus that qualified him for that role. Can't do that either. I've already blown that more than a few times, right? We are all sinners. We have all fallen short of his standard of righteousness and perfection. And so Jesus in his sinlessness alone is qualified to bear our sins and to make and to be our substitute and to make us right with God. And think about the sinlessness of Jesus and what it took, what he had to endure to remain sinless. He remained sinless even while being mistreated horribly, insulted and mocked disdainfully, opposed and hunted mercilessly, and ultimately condemned, tortured, and executed undeservedly. And he remained without sin in the midst of all that. Think about the times you've been insulted, offended, misunderstood, rejected, belittled. Aren't those the very hardest times to keep your cool? Don't you find it nearly impossible to receive such treatment without slipping into sinful thoughts, words, and actions? Even if I don't lash out in some public or visible or obvious way, most likely what's going, down on, going on down in my heart is pretty ugly in those moments. Or in my mind, or I'm sort of thinking about the perfect comeback, or I'm driving away from that conversation, oh, I should have said this, that's how I should have come back at that comment or whatever, right? You've probably experienced something like that. When we are belittled or insulted or rejected, we find it all the harder to remain to, 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 to keep from stumbling into sin. And Jesus endured that exponentially more than we could ever imagine experiencing. And he endured that without sin. Hebrews 14, 15, 4, 15 tells us that he was tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. What a remarkable Savior. His sinless perfection qualified him to suffer in our place. And so out of kindness and mercy and love for wrecked and ruined sinners like us, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. By his wounds, you are healed. Praise God, praise God. Praise God. So as we endure unjust suffering when it comes and we're patient and Godward in that, we are imitating Jesus. We are following the example that he has set for us. And we can only do that because his atonement on the cross has empowered us to do that. It's given us the ability to do that. I love how this passage ends. Verse 25, For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. How sweet to think of Jesus Christ as our shepherd. And what greater need 
can a suffering Christian have than the presence of a loving, careful, wise shepherd? That is who Jesus Christ is to us. Perhaps at some point in your life you've been led to to memorize Psalm 23, which is a, a, a reflection on God as our shepherd. Let me read these words to you. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. What grace to know that Christ, the good shepherd, is right there beside us, even in the valley of the shadow of death. And I suspect that the Christians to whom Peter wrote these verses recognized themselves to be in the valley of the shadow of death. And they needed the care and the presence and the love and the peace of the good shepherd. And that's exactly what Jesus promises. He promises to be our shepherd and he promises to be with us in our suffering. And he promises you will not endure anything that I have not already endured on your behalf. And so Christians, as you're suffering, as you are uh, subjected to unjust suffering, that is suffering that comes into your life because of or in spite of righteousness, Remember, you're following in the steps of Christ and he's giving you by his death on the cross the power to do that. And he's present with you as your shepherd. He is right there with you in the midst of it. And don't we all need that reminder? Even in these days, I would not count coronavirus as unjust suffering per se, but it's hardship and it's frightening and we're uncertain about the future. But our shepherd is with us. Jesus Christ, the good shepherd, is right by our side in the midst of this trial. Let's keep our eyes on him.